You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 562 for June 23rd, 2021. On today's show, trumpeter and vocalist Sarah Wilson. This show exists because folks just like you become members. Please become one today for $5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And here's something free you can do. Please share this episode on your social media. It's the best way to let other people know about the Jazz Session. Here's a track from Sarah Wilson's forthcoming album, Kaleidoscope. Sarah Wilson, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk most of the time about uh, your new record. And actually, as people are listening to this, it's still a few weeks until it uh, comes out on July 16th, 2021. Uh, It's called Kaleidoscope. Uh, features Myra Melford and Matt Wilson, both of whom have been on this show multiple times, plus uh, Charles Burham, uh, Jerome Harris, and John Schott. And it is really fabulous. It's just, it's... The word that kept coming to my mind each time I listened to it was tender. And I don't want that to to imply that that's all it is. But it, it seems very emotionally honest and forthright to me when I listen to it. Whether you're playing the trumpet, whether you're singing, I just I feel like you're right there and you're presenting to us at least some version of your you know, kind of deep interior thoughts. That's at least how it feels to me. I feel free to react to that in any way, up to and including saying, no, I don't think that at all. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. I I went into this project writing music in tribute to the the musical mentors in my life. And they have all in in a myriad of ways and in a kaleidoscope of ways supported me on my artistic journey. Uh, Myra Melford is just a classic mentor. She's a close friend, a musical colleague and a mentor. And I met her in the late 90s in New York City and started studying with her. And then she became a friend and started playing in my projects when we were both uh, in California. And so it's very super close to my heart and super clo- close to my passion that I wrote a lot of this music. I also wrote music for 
teachers I've studied with, John McNeil was such a foundation for me when I first moved to New York in the early 90s. And he led me to study with Laurie Frink. And Laurie Frink led me to study with um, the Schoenberg scholar, Paul Caputo. And there was also a pivotal moment in around 1999 when I was quite lost with my identity as an artist. And I heard Carla Blay play at the Knitting Factory. And I just was, I just had this epiphany, right, I write music and people play it on stage. And that's what it is. And so Presence was written for Carla Blay based on her duo with uh, Steve Swallow called Major. stick on the Carla Blay example for a minute because um, I don't know why this didn't occur to me before given that I knew that there was a piece on here that was written for Carla but one of the hallmarks for me of her music is that it can be deep and uh, even sometimes really challenging while at the same time always feeling inviting to me and obviously that's my you know, that's my personal reaction to it. But I have a similar personal reaction. I think that's why the emotional connection is there with the music on Kaleidoscope, where it it feels very much like the idea of the composer is to welcome in the listener. And I don't think that's universally true, and it doesn't have to be. But I feel like in that in this case, I can see at least some similarity there between you and Carla. Yeah, and I think for me that comes from from growing up listening to pop and rock music and being deeply informed by popular music. And so thereby being really informed by melody and another really influential person uh, as a composer is Bill Frizzell, who I feel like you hear his melodies and and you honestly feel like you've heard it before. It's so familiar the way he's the way he writes, yet you realize, wait, that isn't some standard. That's a Bill Frizzell tune that I just heard that literally is reaching me on that kind of a visceral level. And yeah, I think there's there's also something about coming from that place where you're kind of kinetically connecting with music on an emotional level. There is just, for me anyway, there's a simplicity in the melody that comes out and then my composing technique is to build these counterpointal lines on top to have these like grooves and these things. And so it can actually, and different time signatures. I was really into different time signatures 
uh, when I first started composing, I always had a five, four bar in every one of my tunes. It's like this little spider that snuck in. And so, so there's, there can be this complexity to the music, but the melody is overarching for me coming from this very euphoric place and a very personal place, uh, because of that connection I feel to music. Given that this album, it's not entirely full of pieces that are for other people, but it's primarily that way. Is this music that you have been writing over a period of years? And once you kind of saw that theme, you put them together on a record. Did you have the idea for a record like this and started writing the music? Tell me about how you came up with the the contents of the album. I had, I well... I get grants to fund projects. That's how I survive as a musician. So I uh, had a gig that was coming up at Monterey Jazz, and I'd already secured a grant from the Center for Cultural Innovation in California to write music inspired by my female jazz mentors. So I was specifically focusing on Myra Melford, Carla Blay, and Lori Frink, who I studied trumpet with. And so there, and then around that time, I had a residency at Stag's Leap Winery in Napa after that concert at Monterey Jazz. So it was all kind of fusing together, but there were some pieces that I'd written a few years before. And this music actually was recorded in 2012. It's been um, quite a journey to, to get to this point um, where I could actually have the funds to get this music out into to the public sphere. So it all kind of evolved in that way for me, but there was a strong core of and getting commissions to write music based on my mentors. But originally the music started, uh, I started composing at Jurassic Residence Artists' Residency in uh, Woodstock, California in 2010. And I wrote uh, music there, Kaleidoscope with Grace, I think I wrote the first incarnation of Puzzle Pieces, which is a vocal tunes. Uh, Aspiration was written for a huge project I did at the De Young Museum called Off the Walls, an aerial dance production. So it all kind of happened in this pivotal time from 2010 to 2012, 11, essentially. mentioned at the beginning, uh, and Myra Melford plays on this, but you mentioned how much of a uh, both a mentor and a friend she is. Can you talk about what it was when you first heard Myra's playing that really captivated you? Well, I first heard about her. My dad had heard her in Vancouver, where he lives, and Vancouver, Canada. And he said, I just heard this amazing pianist, and she's just 
just a monster on the piano and she's petite and she's amazing. So I heard about her and then I can't remember the first time I heard her, probably at the Knitting Factory, probably when it was on Houston Street. And I was so inspired. And so she just became my hero. And then I didn't meet her until about 1997 when I was part of an artist collective at a little art gallery in Park Slope that Dave Douglas started. And uh, and Dave introduced me to Myra and then I started studying Henry Threadgill's composing technique with her. So it went from this like this having, you know, she was my hero to then studying with her. And then we just became, we became really close friends as she was leaving Brooklyn to move to, to begin teaching at UC Berkeley. And I'm from California and I, on my own volition, moved back to California as well in 2005. She came in 2004. And then I started working on a new project, Trapeze Project, and she, uh, you know, was part of that project as well. So it's this really amazing relationship on a professional and personal level um, too. And it's just such a gift to have such a amazing um, artist as a friend. And, and I also, I, I once did an introduction about her music for a big concert and residency she had at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, because at this point I really have, Hurt. I've been part of her, hearing her career and hearing all of her projects. So that was such a treat to be able to sort of catalog my experience with her music, understanding on a deep level, because she's also a friend, what those different projects that she's had have come from. So it's such, it's an amazing, um, I'm so grateful for Myra. Let's take a quick break from the interview to remind you about membership. You can become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. At the five dollar a month level, you get early access to every episode, plus you get a bonus track each week called Track of the Week, in which an artist shares a track with you and tells you the story behind it. At the ten dollar a month level, you get all of that, plus you also get a monthly bonus episode, which could be just about anything. So become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks. Now back to the interview. Most uh, trumpet players and vocalists, you started as an anthropology major and then went to work for a puppet theater. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I interviewed someone like that, I, I could have retired years ago. Um, but seriously, uh, tell me about that. Um, give, I mean, given where I am and, uh, you know, literally almost within visual distance of bread and puppet, uh, talk about how you went from anthropology to puppets to where we see. Well, I was going to say to where we see you now, but there's way too much to fit in there. Let's just talk about the first part. Yeah. 
Okay, great. So in in college, I went to a lot of different schools and I beca- I was really drawn to theater. My high school didn't have a theater program. I, I grew up in Healdsburg, California. And at the time it did not. And all of the theater productions I was involved in involved masks. And so it was just kind of a fluke. And then when I was at UC Berkeley, I did a a study abroad year in Sydney, Australia. And because of my American accent, they put me behind a mask in that production. So I just had had this experience with masks. You said, because of my American accent, they put me behind a mask. That those are not two things that go together in my mind. Why? Why did your American <laughs> accent require you to be masked, which in no well, way affects because, your accent? Yeah, well, because I they I couldn't have a speaking role as an actor, so I had gotcha. a non-speaking okay. role with this mask on. It was this sort of modern Earth Mother in this uh, production. And and then I came back to Cal after being in Australia and auditioned for different plays. And it was a little bit random. I didn't even know that I got callbacks for other plays, but I got a callback for the Faust Project. And it was involving puppets. And there was an artist from Bread and Puppet there. And there was a woman, uh, Beth Cleary, who was... Uh, a grad student at Cal at the time in the theater department. And I had never heard of Bread and Puppet. And there were these stuff on Brecht book. There were these huge volumes about Bread and Puppet theater. And I was completely blown away. And I loved working on that production and loved working with these Bread and Puppet artists. Beth was very strongly affiliated with them. And I got invited to, to as a volunteer, they called it at the time, to go in to Glover, Vermont. And I, and I picked up the trumpet again the first day I was with them. I think it was a 4th of July parade. I hadn't played the trumpet really since I was 16 years old. And that had been playing in marching bands. And it wasn't fun for me. It was playing a lot of John Philip Sousa. And all of a sudden, I'm playing in a Dixieland jazz band. Dave Douglas was there at the time because his his ex-wife, his former wife was a bread and puppet puppeteer. And so I'm like, wow, this is really fun. We get to dress up and play the trumpet. So that was, and then the rest is history. Then I got invited into the company more and more. I was, I was becoming focused on music with, with that company, but still did puppetry. So that was the journey. And that led me to New York because I had bread and puppet colleagues there and, yeah, it was there is another artist, the the woman who um who is t- the Tune Yards. She was a puppeteer in Vermont. <laughs> so was she there really? is an artist. Yes, yes. And I haven't ever met her. I I so look forward. I hope someday I can talk to her and say, "We were both puppeteers." How random is that? And in Vermont as well. Yeah, that's fabulous. Uh, yeah, uh, I love Meryl. She's amazing. Yeah. So, oh, and for folks who listen to this show, who do not listen to things outside the world of jazz, can't recommend Tune Yards strongly enough if you uh, if you want to branch out. So, as you mentioned, that that brought you to New York. You were involved with Lincoln Center's uh, Out of Doors Festival, and they had an annual puppet program. And then, of course, in New York, uh, well, once you're in New York, everything is there. So um, you became kind of part of the the downtown scene. And that more or less brings us 
kind of around to the the era when you met Myra and other folks that you started playing with. And but in between then and now, if if my understanding of the story is correct, you've you've kind of gone through some some rediscovery of yourself as a musician. I mean, everything from like the vocals that we hear on this album and whether or not you were going to play the trumpet. It seemed like there was a time again when you maybe thought about putting that down. And uh, I'm just I'm curious to hear more about that, how you've discovered more about who you are as a musician. Yeah, yeah, there was a point. Um, my mother passed away in 2000. And that was a pretty pivotal point for me. I quit playing the trumpet. And I had up to that point been seriously consuming jazz. And for and then in coming back to California and dealing with dealing with someone who's passed away, I started listening to the radio again. And I was listening to pop songs and they were just kind of a salve just to be singing. And some of the pop songs were even terrible. But then I came back to New York and the musicians who I worked with a lot, Kenny Wallison, Tony Cher, uh, Jesse Murphy was a bass player I worked with early on. They were part of this really amazing singer-songwriter scene um, at... um, the name is Escape the Living Room, but it was the first incarnation of the Living Room. And that's when they had all brought Nora Jones to New York from Texas. Steve Cardness and I think Tony and Kenny had all been doing uh, some kind of teaching workshop there. So there was this scene at the Living Room, and it was around, I'd met Jenny Scheinman as well, and we started just hanging out in the living room and it was so soothing for me just to hear songs. And so I was very influenced by that. And there was one night when I heard Tony share, if people don't know, he's an amazing bass player and also an amazing singer songwriter and guitarist. And he did a gig and I heard his music. I was super inspired by one song and I went home and at the piano wrote a song, recorded it into Jenny Scheinman's answering machine. And she called up Tony and said, Tony, Sarah just wrote this song and recorded it into my phone because he lived down the street. He came over and heard it. So in one day, the inspiration heard me write, record and perform. And then he heard the tune. <laughs> but that was the beginning of me writing songs. And so I started writing all of these songs. I wasn't playing the trumpet at that point. And then I wanted to perform them. And a, and a, a former Bread and Puppet colleague of mine, Jenny Romaine, said, well, why don't you just perform as another person? Just be Miranda Roberts. So I borrowed all this wacky clothing from Jenny Scheim and wore a wig that I thought was like Uma Thurman, Pulp Fiction, like sort of art rock babe kind of look and had my makeup done. And it was really interesting because really close friends of mine, I performed at PS122 uh, and really close friends of mine didn't even recognize me. And I had this story that I grew up with Sarah and in Healdsburg. And then I did this whole experiment where I sang these songs. And at the time, I had no idea why I was doing this. And I wasn't even, I'd written these super, what I thought were pop songs. And then people would say, well, that it, it sounds a lot like something that Ornette Coleman would write, you know, just super complicated, <laughs> really hard to sing. But the thing about being an artist is when you have this, you just have to go for it because you don't know where it's going to lead you. And that was so critical because what that did was it gave me 
a way, singing is, it's a way for me to connect to the audience. I don't have this metal trumpet instrument and it gives me time off the horn, which there's no, you know, Louis Armstrong, Chet Baker, there's trumpet players in history that sang because you give, you give yourself a break from playing the trumpet, which is such a difficult instrument. So it had this kind of twofold way. And that's when I began to bring songs into my music. So my first CD I have Music for an Imaginary Play. That's the title of the CD. And I have Shiver and A Dream. And, a, and a, a, I, may, I can't remember. From, I can't remember all the tunes on that. But I always throw in a couple vocal tunes into instrumentals, which is how I'll structure my concert music. And people don't know how to deal with that. Straight ahead jazz audience. It's my own thing. One more break from the show to thank the folks who make the jazz session possible, starting with the members who support it and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the jazz session on Twitter at jazz sesh. <laughs> I still can't say it. I'll never be able to say it. J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. And on Instagram at the jazz session, which I can say if I slow down. As you know, I also can't say jazz musician unless I go really slowly. Take a second right... Apparently, I can't say take a second right now either, but I'm going to keep going. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please don't review it based on this break, though. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, my ability to speak the language in which I broadcast, and more, subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. And now, thankfully, back to the interview. So felt myself calm down. Maybe someday I will fill the room with melody all my own Walk in spring on a muddy trail Following with your footprints Find packed dirt solid on the ground Lone thistle softly And the vocal, the songs on here, the ones with vocals, are... I really love your approach to your voice because uh, it's well, I've already described your your music as very direct but it but it is that like I, it doesn't feel affected at all it doesn't feel like uh, a kind of put on sound or a manipulated sound it just it just sounds like you singing and I mean that as a compliment because I I really like the the authenticity of your voice with these songs. I just, I think it's really beautiful. And um, I, I did know there was going to be singing on the record, so I wasn't stunned when it happened, but it is, 
it is a different thing than the other music on the record and at the same time not. It's a different instrument and it's a different maybe approach to the creation of sound, but it's not like here's an album of instrumental pieces and then I had these other things so I tacked them on. I mean, it all sounds like it flows together. That's great. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting concept. I think it's it's can be a challenging concept, but the way that I think of my voice and the trumpet is that they're just they're breathing music into the compositions that I write. And I think there is I've been told this that there's sort of a similarity in how I approach the trumpet and how I approach singing. Though to be honest, I have a much more training on the trumpet and my voice, the reason it doesn't have that affected sound, I ha- I've had one vocal lesson with Rebecca Martin sometime in the early 2000s. And that's it. I just kind of go from it being that I've been singing my entire life along with the radio and singing along to music in the car. So it, it just comes to me really naturally. And it, and it is a huge resource because I'm so relaxed when I sing and playing the trumpet. It's you're always trying to achieve that relaxed state. And I'm doing a lot of breathing work right now to, to get into that relaxed kind of state with the horn. But so there's, there's a similar kind of thread line, I think in the way that I conceptualize the way that I use instruments in the music I write, but from a, uh, standpoint of style, it is it is different, but I think it's because I write the music that it works, and it's the same instruments playing it. But it is the singing is coming more from a singer songwriter tradition, not a jazz vocalist. When you were talking about singing along with the radio, for whatever reason, this bizarre anecdote popped into my head. But I remember reading an article once about Bing Crosby and about one of his effects on general music listeners was because he sounded so uh, so much like just a guy singing that a lot of a lot of people thought, oh, that sounds really easy to do until they tried to do it and then realized that actually there was a lot more going on there in the, the voice of Bing Crosby than just a dude who was singing along with the radio. And it I mean, it really is true. There's more there's more to it than that. And at the same time, there's also, there's also only that to it sometimes, which I also really like. I think, I think they can be beautiful just to, just to say here, you know, here's my voice and here's what I can do with it. I mean, assuming you can sing on key and that kind of thing, which obviously you can. So I really, I really like that aspect of it. Yeah, there's also, I was super honored and it was so great. Hans Vendel produced this CD and in approaching the music, he, he, I, I did a lot of sports growing up. And so I'm used to working with coaches. And, and Hans became a real coach to me. And he, in the way that, you, that there's a similarity between my voice and trumpet, there's a similarity in terms of on the trumpet, you're, you're used to playing on downbeat. So there's a certain way that I was phrasing my voice. And he said, you know, why don't you listen to some Willie Nelson, who's, he recommended two records. He recommended listening to, I think it's Red Haired Stranger by Willie Nelson and a Michelle and Degicello 
record. And Willie was really for phrasing because his phrasing is so good. And Michelle and Diego Cello was more the concept of having this contained uh, record and in terms of the way that we are approaching Kaleidoscope. But it was so cool to get to, to work with Hans. And that had a real impact, I'd say, on my improvising in Young Woman. We were really going back and forth. And when I started working on the Willie Nelson phrasing, it got me out of this kind of playing like the trumpet more and I loosened up more. And I certainly want to keep exploring phrasing because, of course, that's that's how great singers are achieving so much is is phrasing so that was a really cool thing to work on for the cd as well and it also had an impact on my trumpet improvising on the record as well it's a sign of a broad-minded producer when he recommends willie nelson and michelle and degliacello as the two things you should listen to because i don't think they probably get segued into a whole lot in a lot of other circumstances so kudos because those are two Two great artists who probably don't end up in a lot of playlists together. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of how I work musically. I mean, I I like what I like, and so I just like re- music. And it is it is very diverse because I don't see... I mean, there was a period in you know 1993 to 2000 when jazz was the only music that mattered to me, and everything else was, and except 20th century contemporary classical music that that worked for me. Um, and then I got, and then everything exploded again. Except even in that con paradigm, I was still super influenced by Afro-Cuban music, and uh, but uh, I do have a really broad palette and view music. I don't have a hierarchy of styles. My guest for this episode has been Sarah Wilson. The new album, which comes out on July 16th, 2021 on Brass Tonic Records, is called Kaleidoscope. As you've already heard during the course of this interview, it's really wonderful, and you should get it the moment it comes out. Sarah, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I'm super appreciative. Really fun to talk about my music with you. Thanks to this week's guest, Sarah Wilson. If you value what you just heard, become a member for five or ten bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then come back next week for the final episode of season 13 of The Jazz Session. everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.